Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Popular public conception of war has a long and problematic history, with its origins in ancient texts like Soon Tzu's The Art of War to best-selling books like Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Though many stories depicting the brutality of war and its toll on soldiers and civilians alike are written in the spirit of anti-war sentiment, these works often inadvertently frame combat as exciting and dramatic, while painting individual soldiers as heroes on the battlefield. But the reality of war is much more nuanced than the typical narratives might have you believe. In truth, life in a war zone is often much more frustrating and tedious than most civilians can fathom. So, what are the ethics of writing about war? What are the responsibilities of writers depicting war in their work? Winner of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award for Creative Nonfiction, writer Stephen Moore's stunning debut, The Longer We Were There, a memoir of a part-time soldier, considers these questions with both a wry sense of humor and a sharp analytical eye. Moore's narrative deftly weaves his deployment experiences in Afghanistan with commentary from great critical minds like Joan Didion, Maggie Nelson, Tim O'Brien, and Tobias Wolfe in an attempt to tell the sprawling story of the war in Afghanistan from the perspective of a part-time soldier. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Stephen Moore to learn more about his first memoir, The Longer We Were There, available now from the University of Georgia Press. Stephen, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, we're here to talk about your first uh, book, which is called The Longer We Were There, a memoir of a part-time soldier. And so this book won a prize. So it was chosen by Dinty W. Moore for the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award for Creative Nonfiction. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that award and about your experience with it. Yeah, so AWP does an award series for um, multiple genres. They do one in fiction, they do one in poetry, and they do one for creative nonfiction. And then each of the um, genres like publishes through a different press that kind of specializes in that kind of work. So AWP um, publishes their creative nonfiction award through the University of Georgia Press, and I. I think that I came to learn about it through, I think it was Entropy. I think I have to give credit to Entropy's where to submit when I was looking around for what would be a good um, fit for the manuscript. And um, I had seen that um, Dinty was the judge and I thought like, man, it would be a really, it'd be a really great opportunity for um, my work to kind of get in front of somebody whose work I've admired for a long time. So I, I gave it a shot. Um, I sent the manuscript out to a few places, and I got some very fortunate news. Well, that's wonderful. And here the book is. Um, so I had a, a question about the subtitle, just to start yeah. us off. So the book's sure. subtitle is A Memoir of a Part-Time Soldier. Uh what does it mean to be a part-time soldier? Uh, what branch of the military did you serve in, and um, about when? Yeah, so I joined the Iowa Army National Guard in 2004, 
late 2004 and I separated in early 2012. So it was about seven years, a little more than seven years. Um, and I was really interested in that perspective um, specifically when I started writing about kind of the ways in which for folks who are not like full-time regular army or full-time service members, how you kind of bring the rest of your um, self and the rest of your identity to your military work. Um, I was going to drill on the weekends when I was in college as an English major. And then I graduated from the university in 2010 and deployed to Afghanistan really right after graduation. I graduated in May, I deployed in August. And so it was a really quick kind of turnaround between um, being a college student and studying literature and then being um, on deployment and doing that for my, you know, job for my like occupation. And I was kind of interested in that juxtaposition. I was pretty confused by it and I was trying to use the the nonfiction form to work through some of that. So then what drew you to the National Guard? And then can you tell us the story of how you found yourself deployed so soon after graduation? Yeah, I so I joined when I was 17. Um, I'd kind of always been interested in it. And I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I was I was just kind of in I was interested in in the idea of service. I was interested in the idea of kind of giving back to um, to a community, I guess. And I just liked the um, the notion of it that it was kind of this somewhat ordinary thing, but that it was something that you could do that would be um, be an opportunity, I guess, to uh, do something that was maybe a little bit more challenging and difficult and strange and Um, so I joined when I was in high school and it was just kind of by chance that I didn't deploy for the first five and a half years of being in the guard. Um, as soon as I had gotten enlisted, the unit that I joined had just gotten back from a deployment. It was a really, really, really long deployment. And because of that, they were kind of taken off of the deployment schedule for a a longer amount of time than was normal then. So I got to go through all of um, my four years of college just by chance. Like it just kind of worked out that way. And I was really fortunate. Um, so as soon as I graduated, I kind of knew exactly where I would be going. So early on in the memoir, you note your confusion around the phrase citizen soldier. Um, and you write, Uh, When someone asked me to talk about it, what it was like to be a citizen soldier, I couldn't, because the truest part, the part I felt most deeply, was the middle space, the in-between, the damn hyphen. And I am still trying to figure out what language might also go there. Uh, So could you talk us through the the dissonance between those two concepts of citizen and of soldier? Yeah, I think think what was so confusing to me and what took kind of some time to write through is that it was this sort of like identity that was made of two things that are by definition opposed to each other that you would be partly both and partly both at the same time 
And that's, it was, it was just kind of a difficult headspace to get myself around. And some of the scenes that I found most compelling to write about were moments when I was trying to describe kind of one experience to the other. So when people ask about like people in my like civilian life asking about what I was doing at drill or like trying to talk about what my um, interests were in like my civilian life during a, a, like a military space. I just found that very, I found it very confusing. And I thought that one of the opportunities in creative nonfiction specifically would be to try to figure out what it would look like to, um, to try to inhabit kind of that middle and um, write from um, a space that appreciates both, if that makes sense. It does. Can you talk a little bit more about um, where the confusion sort of lay in those two roles? Um, so what about, for example, being a citizen uh, doesn't necessarily line up with one's role as a soldier or vice versa? It's... <laughs> One of the things that I that I write about in the book is that the the contexts for what like what's important are so different. So when you're going to drill and you're asked to think about um, like if you're doing like our infantry training, we'd be asked to think about where you would be in like a squad movement or a team movement. You'd be asked to think about what direction to fire your rifle and what direction to fire your automatic. And it was really just that the, um, the situations that you're asked to think about are all organized around like incredible amounts of violence. And it's always like this simulation of extreme hypothetical violence that you're asked to take very seriously. And then, you know, 24 hours later, that kind of situation once you're back in your civilian job is so far away and strange and like feeling essentially irrelevant that the thing that you were taking very, very seriously 24 hours ago is no longer part of your day-to-day life, no longer part of your day-to-day experience. And then like vice versa, like the things that I'm learning about in college classes, um, that I'm asked to think very, very hard about and very carefully about um, if I'm spending, you know, a ton of my time writing an essay about Ulysses or whatever it is that that focus and that priority stops being um, so important in the context of what I'm doing on the weekends. And I think it's really hard to reconcile that like just dramatic shift in um, what's important and like the dramatic shift in what you're being asked to think really carefully about. Right. And I'm glad that you bring that up because, uh, so you were a a literature major in college, right? Right. Yeah. So throughout the memoir pays such careful attention to the language and the acronyms that the military uses from, um, you know, thinking about the term citizen soldier, as you just did to uh, FOB to ECP and so many more. Um, the memoir often notes how these terms can work to obscure meaning in a way. Um, So I'm curious, what is the institutional utility of imprecise language and how did it feel as a soldier to have to navigate these terms in a combat zone? Oh, interesting. Um, 
I'm not sure what angle, like what approach to take to that question. I, I think a lot of it happened afterward. Um, what I was doing is I would open up the uh, the notebook that I'd had that I would uh, like kept, um, not like a personal notebook, but like my like mission notebook where I would take down the um, like vehicle roster plan for uh, patrol, and I would write down what the coordinates were for our different like um like helicopter positions when we had them i would take down all these like specific detailed information and it was always like in um very very specific military language and you know a year or two later it would look so strange and so foreign um in a lot of cases it was just like the most efficient way to communicate at the time but then it also becomes a barrier to communicating that experience to someone else that you have to go through and teach the kind of the economical system that you had learned. And it, it becomes a contradiction where it's no longer um, the quickest way to conveying information because you have to spend all this time kind of explaining the the system that you used just for thinking, just for like, um, processing um, what you're going through, like the the language that you're that you're working over is just completely different, and um, I think that was a challenge. But I also think that that's a challenge that a lot of writers who are working through stuff completely unrelated to the military also have to go through, where whatever your topic is, whatever your subject is, you have to figure out like what the specific like expert level languages that you have to communicate to somebody else and determine what's the most important thing for them to know what's the most important um uh, like vocabulary and why is it important like why is it important to to teach somebody a specific um kind of language and like what are the what are the implications of that specificity um, so there's like one section in the book where I had to kind of figure out, do I need to teach somebody like the, the significances between like a Humvee and an MRAP? Like why, like what would be important for a reader to know about that difference? And I had to kind of decide like, well, the, the difference or the significance to me is that like one of those vehicles shows this progression through time, that it was this response with technology to events that had happened before. And that it represents this movement in the war that people should be able to understand. And being able to see one specific military vehicle in detail would help them see the, the rest of the story. And there were other moments where it wasn't necessary to teach someone like the language. It wasn't necessary to go into detail about the difference between a Chinook or a Blackhawk in that particular moment. It wasn't really that important. But it was kind of a case-by-case -case basis where I had to determine like, how much of the language do I need to like get a reader to kind of see in the way that I see or saw at that time in order mm -hmm. to understand like what the, the thought process is like um, for someone in that position. Mm -hmm. And so do you feel like um, the use of acronyms or specialized language might make it easy to um, kind of lose sight of the nuance of what they mean, even for um, somebody who, let's say, is not a reader of the book, but maybe somebody who 
um, is also um, somewhat familiar with these terms themselves, have have used them themselves, but maybe haven't considered what what they mean or why they're being used? I think, oh, that's an interesting question. I think you have to like be aware of like your potential audiences, like that there are people who do know every single term that you're about to use and there are people who don't know any of it. And you kind of have to navigate that issue by determining how much of it is important and how much of it is um like how much like in the language itself do you need to, to like excavate? Um, and there were some moments where I do think that those terms are, are like useful to kind of press on to, um, to like learn more about like that specific situation, but it can get really tedious um, specifically. Like if you're the person who already has that specialized knowledge that um, somebody's teaching you information you already know. Um, and that's just something that I also think like I've, I mean, I, I've read so, so many accounts of somebody explaining like what it's like to eat an MRE, like, right. I, and some of those are really unique and interesting. And some of them are just definitely not for me. Like they're just, they're, they're not talking to me as a reader, which is fine too. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, kind of the, the beginning of the book. So in a, in a very early chapter, you write about the process of what's called ripping in to a new post in Afghanistan. Um, which for those who haven't read the book is essentially taking over for a group of past soldiers who are then ripping out and heading home. Um, and you note that there in, in this process, there's very little passing of institutional knowledge from one group to the next. Um, and the memoir as a whole seems to critique uh, the kind of inefficiency and maybe even haphazard methods of military operations during the so-called war on terror and I'm wondering if you could tell us about how you as a soldier began to kind of realize this. Yeah, I think one of the, it was, I mean, it was a really strange process um, because basically the way that it works is two platoons will kind of like match up with each other. And what you do is you go find the person who has your exact job. So the, alpha team leader of the second squad of the first platoon, like I would go find that person and they would have my exact job and they would just teach me as much as they could in like four days about what they had done over the last 10 or 12 months. And I mean, in a way it was, it was really, really helpful, but at the same time, like (laughs) there's only so much you can do and there's only so much you can learn. And you're only learning from one person. You're only getting like their kind of subjective experience about what they encountered doing the job that you'll specifically also be doing. And that was, it was just, it felt so bizarre and it was so kind of strange. Um, but it also felt like there was an incredible amount of pressure on, um, like that person's ability to tell you the story of what they had just done. And, And like, that was kind of the, the first impression is I met a guy from Connecticut and he told me as many like kind of anecdotes as he could about what his life had been like for the last 12 months. And I just, I tried to take in as much as I could from that one person. And it just struck me that there is just such a pressure on that process. And it does, it makes um, institutional knowledge really, really fragile. Um, Especially because 
it's really unbalanced. So all the people, like a lot of the Afghan folks that we would meet had, you know, been, they had been uh, meeting new groups of soldiers over and over and over and over again, and trying to teach them the same things over and over and over again about what their communities were like and about um, the kind of dynamics between um, their different communities. And we would try to preserve it amongst ourselves, but it was obviously just a very, it's a very challenging process. And um, I just, I, I felt um, very aware of it when I was going through it. And I just thought it was a, a pretty useful place to start because that's kind of where I started. It's where I kind of picked up the thread is somebody telling me, all right, here's everything that I went through and do with that what you can, because that's the moment we're in right now. So in a later chapter, you write, um, in serving in the military, you give up a little bit of yourself and you are not supposed to want it back. But that is what storytelling does. Um, after giving up that bit of yourself, writing is a means of getting it back. And um, so maybe we could step outside of the book for just a minute and talk about uh, your journey to becoming a writer, which may in part be due to the kind of anecdotes or stories that you heard, you know, ripping in. Uh, so when did you first begin to kind of record these experiences or start to take note of them yourself? Like of like deployment specifically? Yeah. Um, I mean, probably as soon as I got back, I mean, I had been studying creative nonfiction, like in my most seriously in my last year of undergrad, where I really got like, of just like an exhilarating introduction to essays and memoir. And I would, I kind of spent a year studying them really seriously and then writing like pretty um, in a way that I felt was like really exciting and not at all related to my military life, but just writing essays and writing um, creative nonfiction. And I was writing when I was deployed about things that were not at all related to um, my military life. Um, I was writing and submitting stuff from on submittable from Afghanistan and trying to like keep my sense of myself as a writer like intact and um I didn't really start writing about the the military aspect of things until after I got back cuz I didn't have a sense of like the scope of it. I didn't really have a sense of like what the shape of it was and it took me another couple years to really kind of like kind of feel through the dark of, of that room and um, start to kind of gather things together. And it was kind of at the, it would have been in 2014 when I started the MFA program at Oregon State that I started really kind of collecting things and, and putting them down. Did you find that through that process, you were kind of able to get that part of yourself back that was originally um, sort of given to the to the military or to your service? Kind of. And, and like one of the things that I was, I was kind of trying to touch on is like, there's a certain, I don't think it exists to the degree it used to, but it, it felt like there was a kind of a, a stigmatization of like talking to in detail or to at length about um, what you did when you were in the military, that there was a kind of like very noble silence that, um, another generation had kind of like established and that seemed to be the um, 
the appropriate thing to do is to just like do it and then leave it there and just kind of be done with it. And it's, it was a really paradoxical thing because some of those uh, experiences were just like very influential to me and I was very interested in talking about them. And I do think that like I was able to better understand them by writing through them. And I think it was really productive to do that and to, um, to not just like leave it be and like go after whatever the next thing is that I wanted to talk about, write about. I think it was like really useful to, um, to dig in and start kind of going through those, uh, those stories. So I'm glad that that you mentioned, yeah, absolutely. It really does. Um, and I'm glad that you, you bring this up because it leads into, um, my, my next question, which is kind of about, um, the, the ways that, you know, maybe civilians conceive of war or conceive of what, what soldiers were doing in Afghanistan at that time. Um, right. So th- throughout the memoir, there is a focus on the war, um, a war that continues, in, you know, in many fashions to this day, um, as one that is easy for the average American to forget, especially since the narratives of war as depicted in, in books, in movies, um, is so different from the reality of it. So you write about feeling frustration um, when a local newspaper reporter asks you how it feels to be home, right? Once you returned from Afghanistan. Um, And to this, you say, America looked at the war in Afghanistan whenever the war could produce a coherent story. Rarely was it capable of doing so. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about that juxtaposition a little bit. Yeah, I think, well, that, I think that moment stuck out to me the the question about like being being happy to be home just because it raised this issue about like sentimentality that I was really concerned about and I was really worried when I would when I would see like that kind of framing because it it always just made me wonder like who wants to feel good about this and why like or like conversely like who is inviting us to feel good about this and what's their motivation for doing that? And it always just seemed really strange that that would be like an, an approach. Like the first thing that we're going to do when we're going to talk about this, um, about this war is from a perspective of like, are the soldiers happy? Like it sort of doesn't matter. Like it just, it, it just doesn't seem like the right question at all to me. And I was just so confused by it. And I think one of the things that over time, like I've, I think I've become more generous about is not that people struggling to understand like what's going on from like a day to day or month to month, um, like level, like when it comes to Afghanistan, like that, I don't think that's so much like a failure of like civics or like a failure of citizenry. It's just, a, it's a really, really complicated thing to understand. And it's, it's a hard thing to always have your like finger on the pulse of. And I I do think that like one thing that writers with that background can do is like, if that's your area, if that's like one of the things that you can like stay up to date about is to try to cohere it as much as you can. And so when you have an opportunity to like direct people's attention to it in a way that it's graspable because it is really hard to understand it. And it really is 
extraordinarily complicated. Um, and I think, I think that like that level of frustration, I've kind of grown more, um, more understanding about because there's so much for people to try to, to try to stay um, up to date about and try to stay informed about. And a lot of them, a lot of those issues are extraordinarily difficult to summarize and to um, take particulars and make them fit into the larger scheme of things. Um, and especially as it relates to a war that's been going on for so long. So I, I think I've, I think I've gotten more like generous toward how difficult that can be and um, trying, like trying to find opportunities to um, be helpful and be um, informative. But I, I, I get it. Like, I think it's a really hard thing to do, but um, I think it's a matter of like asking the right questions. And I think one of the things that, that does and does like still frustrate me is like when it's time to think about this issue and when we start with just absolutely the wrong questions. I think that's like the most challenging part of it is what are the, what are the frames that are actually helpful, actually like useful in um, processing those kinds of events. Yeah. And you, um, you bring in several different frames in the book later in the book. Um, so you bring in Joan Didion, but you also invoke Maggie Nelson and the art of cruelty um, to kind of cite an, an ethical problem, right? So you write um, that the ethical problem is that an essay or a memoir may not be studying the violence of war so much as producing it or causing it onto another person, onto the reader. Um, right. So what are the responsibilities of art makers depicting war? And how did you consider these while you were writing the longer we were there? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that I tried to, to keep in mind is it seemed to me like there used to be a presumption that as long as you were very clear about how gruesome something is, then you're doing your job as as an artist. Like as long as you let people know that it's horrifying or um, bloody or gratuitous, like as long as you show that in enough detail, people will be sufficiently disturbed by it that they will never want to produce that kind of a situation again. And that just like the sheer like grotesquery of um, violence will will keep people away from it and will help um, help stop those kinds of things from happening. And I think more and more art is is able to acknowledge that that's just not true. That um, that it can sometimes have the adverse effect. And I think one of the things to to um, do in response to that is to try to show like the full picture in. I mean, like I didn't have that um, dramatic of a deployment, but to to try to put the violence in its like full context and try to explain where um, where it's purposeful and where it's not, and where um, it's boring and where it's not, and where it's tedious, and try to like show what the uh, the full experience is like, and to try to ask try to ask questions that don't necessarily privilege violence as, as like purposeful or meaningful inherently. And to try to ask questions that, that are actually directed at um, the, 
communities that these like stories take place in like what is actually to the benefit of the people who live here who are um day-to-day experiencing this and uh trying to be responsible to something just beyond like the sheer like um like gratuitousness of of how of how bad it can get you know what i mean right. does that make sense yeah it does and um the the gratuitousness that you're sort of referring to in different like uh you know war movies in particular um they often have kind of the opposite effect where it actually encourages people to enlist or you know uh can encourage people to to want to experience something like that is that sort of what yeah. you're saying yeah, and like there's a there's a moment that I quote. Um, so there's a there's this like conversation that um, Tim O'Brien and Tobias Wolf have where they're talking about um, their war writing, and Tim O'Brien is talking about this this kind of weird paradoxical issue where people keep telling him that that his writing has prompted them to get involved in the military when they hadn't thought about it before, and he's just horrified about it because he thinks of himself as a fairly obvious like anti-war writer and the thing that really strikes me one of the, the things that tobias wolf mentions is he 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 makes this sort of moth to flame metaphor and about how violence can be kind of seductive to certain people and he makes this comment where he says something like um even when you leave nothing out about the experience people still will want to do it and it seems to have that presumption that as long as you leave nothing out then you're doing the right thing. And I just, I think a lot of the writing that I'm starting to see is like moving past that idea that like leaving nothing out, like that's not the problem. Like that's not really like the scope of the issue. So I want to talk about the final chapter, which is called The Case for Zakir. Um, It's very different from previous sections in the book in that it's making an explicit argument about the welfare of Afghan interpreters who risked their lives to help U.S. soldiers. Um, so could you give us sort of a summary of the problem and, uh, how, if at all, has this situation changed since the book was published? How does it need to? Yeah. So that chapter is about the special immigrant visa program, which is designed to, um, give visas to Afghan interpreters. So after they've finished kind of their service as interpreters, that they get a visa to, the United States. And the reason they do that is because a lot of them, just by their proximity to American troops, because they worked with us, that they're really no longer safe in their own communities anymore. Um, that they um, they they have to prove that there's a threat to their life. Um, and very often that's not a difficult thing to do. And so um, there's a program that's specifically designed to Um, relocate them to the United States. And a lot of the interpreters I worked with um, did go through that program and are living in the United States now and are, um, are doing really well. And then there's another um, gentleman who I worked with who's had a really difficult time with it. And it is an extremely bureaucratic process. It's like all of the, uh, all of the challenges of, um, the the refugee system but overlaid with a war zone like an active ongoing war zone and he has had an extraordinarily difficult time and um, 
one of the things that I wanted to do at the end of the book is make sure that it didn't just seem like, well, my my involvement is over, my part of the story is over, and therefore the story itself is over. I wanted to include kind of the ongoing, um, the ongoing effects and like what's still going on related to people who I was involved with people I knew who were there. Um, so I wrote about him. He's, I mean, he's still struggling. He's still working through, um, that process. It's been really, really difficult. One of the, one of the problems is there's just not enough visas. Um, even those folks who are eligible and have been told that they, um, are in, are in line, there's just, there aren't enough of them. Um, the other issue is that a lot of interpreters have been essentially blacklisted from the process altogether. They have some kind of mark on their record that has um, precluded them from uh, from being um, accepted into the program. And those are really, really difficult things to undo because the people who were involved in those like those marks they they move on and somebody you know has clicked a button that says this person is a risk or a threat in some way and that just kind of sticks forever and everybody who was actually involved in the background of that um is just no longer part of the process they're just no longer um, involved and it becomes really really difficult and um some interpreters have successfully um, had their cases kind of reopened and reexamined, and they fought their way through the legal system. But it's um, you have to have a lot of resources. You have to have a lot of connections. There are mm-hmm. some amazing nonprofit groups and advocacy groups who are working with them. But it's it's a really um, it's a really large problem for um, for interpreters to work through, and um, the resources available to them are are pretty narrow. So the, I mean, one of the, the first and most basic things is just making more visas available. There are fewer visas available now than there used to be. Um, it used to be a very bipartisan, um, kind of legislation that it was pretty straightforward to recognize that, um, these interpreters have served alongside the United States troops and they have done what we've asked them to do. And, because they have done what they what we've asked them to do, they're no longer uh, safe in their own communities. And making enough visas available for people in that situation was a fairly kind of bipartisan action. It's it's become a little bit more of a uh, it's become a little bit more um, challenging, and there are fewer and fewer and fewer visas that seem to be available. I mean, it affects interpreters in Afghanistan, it affects interpreters um in Iraq as well. But making more available is the first is the first like kind of thing, the first like legislation that that we can do. The the second is being able to reopen cases for blacklisted interpreters because they once they have that like kind of um issue on their record, um it just becomes very, very difficult and they're really um kind of swimming against the current trying to access a service that was really designed to protect them. And to be clear, the the issue or the mark on their record, it's it's not 
always fairly applied, right? It's sometimes it's a misunderstanding or. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's very, very case by case, but, um, my, like my position in the, in the, that last chapter is that it, the, the issue that's kind of preventing Zakir specifically from entering the United States is a mistake. And, um, it seems to be fairly, fairly clear, but it's one of those things that like, once it gets kind of lodged, that it becomes, it has its own kind of energy almost. It's like one of these bureaucratic things that like once it's started, it's very, very difficult to stop. Once that information seems to exist, it's very, very hard to refute it. Um, it's, it happens, it happened years ago and it's, yeah, it's just, it's really hard to, um, to kind of switch things back. Um, it's like one of those mistakes that um, just starts to carry its own kind of momentum. And it's, it's really hard for, um, for interpreters in that situation to do anything about it. Right. And the stakes are high because, you know, like in Zakir's case, he's in, he's in danger in his community. He can't go outside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those problems that really starts to snowball. Um, he doesn't feel safe going out into his community. So he doesn't feel safe going out to get work. He, then his, his kind of his self-image and his opinion of himself starts to, to dovetail because he can't think of himself as a person who's kind of contributing to his household and to his family. And it's, it's something that really starts to spiral. And like the thing that's so, I mean, like alarming to me is that really what it does is it, it divorces somebody from the community that they're from. And what's happened is that they've, they've so closely connected themselves with um, American soldiers that, that it's, that it's separated them from their own communities. But at the same time, we have also um, rejected them from the United States so that they're kind of in this um, really, really difficult um, kind of no man's land where they don't belong to their own communities anymore. We don't accept them into ours. And it's a, it's a really, it's a really dark place um, for someone to kind of just get left. And um, he was, he was really um, generous toward me to like being um, for him to tell me more about what he's been going through. And um, there's a lot of stories like that. I mean, I think, I think every uh, major publication has run a fairly detailed account of the special immigrant, the special immigrant visa program where it's been successful, where it's been, um, where it's become a problem. Um, it's pretty, I, like, I feel like confident that there's a lot of um, attention to it and there's a lot of advocacy, advocacy groups who are working on it, but, um, it's still a really difficult thing to, uh, to pursue. Right. Right. Well, um, I just have one more question for you, Stephen. Sure. Um, and that is, so what, what are you hoping that the reader of the longer we were there will come away from the book understanding better about war and maybe specifically how war is depicted in art and understood in our popular culture? Oh, hmm. I kind of, I kind of just hope it would give people like one more reference point. I feel like the the more perspectives you can have about something the better 
And having just like one more view of things, I think can be just really useful. Um, I don't know if I have like one overarching like takeaway, but I think it can it can help to have like one more personal story so that when you the next time you hear about one of these issues, you can kind of connect it into like a greater constellation of um, of personal stories, of journalism, of art that you could have like one more point to kind of bounce an idea around in so that you're not just coming to something for the first time. Hopefully it's just one more perspective people can learn from. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zoe. I really appreciate it. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to Stephen Moore discuss his new book, The Longer We Were There, on the New Books and Literature channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.